Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Egan. In tonight's show, how women's lives, loves, and dreams have been reshaped since 1950, the year of Walt Disney's Cinderella. The story of Irish Georgian silver, death and conflict on the Bera Peninsula as we investigate the execution of Bridget Noble. The chilling account of how an impoverished, idealistic youth from the provinces of Tsarist Russia was transformed into the cunning and fearsome outlaw, Stalin. And finally, to end the show, we'll be dipping into some local history with the journal Obelisk. Over the last two weeks, we've been discussing some of the biggest battles in world history, with a look back at the Battle of Stalingrad last week for the June Bank holiday weekend, and a new take on the Battle of Verdun two weeks ago. And if you want to listen back to these or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Now, there's a wonderful series of lectures taking place in the Little Museum of Dublin over the next few weeks, starting on the 22nd of June. Two historians are going to be giving three lectures each on various icons from Irish and Dublin history. Uh, the historians are Dr. Mary McAuliffe, the brilliant historian who we've had on the show many times. The other historian is me. And if you want to get tickets, you can just go to uh, the website littlemuseum.ie. They're going to be uh, streamed uh, live from the Little Museum. And uh, some of the icons, well, they include Robert Emmett, Daniel O'Connell, Margaret Skinner, uh, Kathleen Clark, and Noel and Phyllis Brown. So you can find out all about the series icons and how to get tickets on the Little Museum of Dublin website. But we begin tonight's show with love lives from Cinderella to Frozen. Cinderella's stories captured the imagination of girls in the 1950s when dreams of meeting the right man could seem like a happy ending and a solution to life's problems. But since then, women's lives have been transformed not by the magic wand of a fairy godmother, nor by marrying princes, but by education, work, birth control and feminism and a new book explores the reshaping of women's lives loves and dreams since 1950 the year in which Walt Disney's film Cinderella came out all the way up to Disney's Frozen in 2013 the book is called Love Lives from Cinderella to Frozen it's published in hardback by Oxford University Press and costs £20 sterling so about €23 the author is Carl Diehouse and Carl you're very welcome to the show tonight Thank you very much for inviting me Patrick it's a brilliant book and I think what I loved most about it is that it's a serious subject and a scholarly subject and you explore it so well but it's brilliantly framed by starting with 1950 and Cinderella and ending with Frozen in 2013 that it's a it's a very interesting way of of looking at this. Well, I wanted to you know some social history books um can be quite hard going if they just kind of struggle through statistics and laws and so on. And I wanted to try and make it more palatable to the general reader. And I suppose also, I think the impact of the Disney films has been underestimated. You know, we we go on about changes in educational policy. And I think sometimes we forget the enormous impact um, that some of these films have. And I think particularly the 1950 um, animated Cinderella and of course, Frozen, anybody with young daughters is going to know that Frozen kind of gets into their brains. Um, but going back to the Cinderella thing, I found the Cinderella story seems to have a huge purchase in the culture of post-war Britain. You know, if you flip through women's magazines of that time, you're likely to find all sorts of 
references that may not be direct, but, you know, I was looking through and I see that Revlon lipstick, for instance, in the 50s is advertised as being available in this wonderful new vibrant shade of Cinderella's pumpkin orange. <laughs> and, um, and petrol, Shell Petroleum, is advertised with a sort of pumpkin with coachman and a, and a very sort of 1940s fashionable Cinderella coming out of it. You know, so... It kind of, it's interesting to see just how much these images and I suppose you might say tropes now, although I'm never quite sure what tropes mean, but these images and ideas get into people's heads, you know. Um, and I don't think fairy stories are universal. I think that certain kinds of fairy stories and, and myths appeal to societies at particular historical moments and for some for various reasons cinderella was just a really potent dream in post-war britain you know as the father of a young daughter i i know exactly uh, <laughs> but know i think Fro I, I i think frozen <laughs> and frozen 2 are, are brilliant movies though i love them myself yeah. and yeah uh, i don't think we've shown her cinderella and i'm just wondering about how you see that relationship between cinderella and the audience is it that cinderella is reflecting uh what were the the norms and views of society or is it helping to actually shape them both um a, a bit both i mean and that's what walt disney himself said i think you know he he i quote something that he said at the beginning of the at the beginning of the book but um he said that you know that the movies should should reflect dreams but they also construct and you, you know i think Possibly now, looking if if young girls now look at that 1950s thing, it does seem very dated. But you can see what appealed to people. I mean, the lack of housework is one thing. <laughs> you know, if you you haven't seen it, have you, Patrick? The 1951. I but little birds and animals do all the housework. You know, it's like the opposite of austerity Britain. Uh. And um, and you know, she's arrayed she's arrayed in this kind of almost a Dior new look dress. The thing is that. They do look soppy now, those early Disney heroines, whereas Elsa and Anna in Frozen 1 are brilliant, aren't they? And I mean, there's no kind of suggestion, as there is in the 1950 version, that, you know, you find your man and that's the end of the dream. I mean, you know, that is the end. That's why I think I called the first, well, that's why I called the first chapter of the book When Men Were an Ending. I mean, with Elsa and Anna, you certainly don't get the idea that a man is an ending. You get the idea that their lives and their adventures are just about to start. And actually, princes are a bit dodgy in Frozen 1. You know, in fact, you know, the real love in Frozen 1 is between the two sisters. Exactly. A spoiler there as well. Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry uh, about that. No, no, no. <laughs> and, and like the same in Moana, you know, great, strong, independent yeah. characters who are able to shape their own uh, another one of my favourite movies uh, yeah. uh, it's interesting the way you explore how some of the stereotypes some of the images from Cinderella then became part of the the language used to mm. to attack feminists mm. that and, oh. and was that a deliberate thing as well or was that tapping into that 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 that, that storyline yes well I think I'm not sure that that I would press that too far. It's more my interpretation than that. But when I was looking at people's attitudes, you know, from 
at Sussex in Brighton, we have this thing called the Mass Observation Archive, which was originally set up in the interwar period um, in an attempt by anthropologists of that time to try and make sense of the views of ordinary people. And it's a bit dodgy, this concept of ordinary people, but the mass observation studies are still going. Um, and they do, they ask people from all walks of life who's shown a willingness to, to write for them, to comment on everyday subjects. And the two um, surveys that I was particularly interested in um, date from the 1990s. And they do show, one of them shows a lot of hostility to feminism. And I, you know, I think that's kind of interesting. When feminism goes in and out of um, popular acceptance, doesn't it? I mean, those of us who have taught, for instance, in universities can remember in the 1970s and 1980s, students were very keen on feminist subjects and there was a lot of, of playfulness and interest in it. But by the end of the century, there was a feeling that feminists were anti-men, you know, and that feminism had gone too far. It's revi It revived a bit in the 21st century. And, of course, you know, we've got all the trouble that's been going on the last couple of days, <laughs> which show that, you know, that feminism's getting kind of, you know, quite militant again because of 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 what's going on in, in society at the moment. You know, we had the Me Too moment before, but just yesterday we had these, these demonstrations um, in London, which have caused all the trouble which people will have seen on the news. And it's interesting as well when you look at some of the, the trends over, uh, over those decades since 1950, you know, one of the most interesting ones is the age at which women get, get married because, you know, I think mm. you were considered, you know, you know, disaster if you weren't married by, you know, maybe 25 or certainly 30, 30, you were ancient. No, whereas... no, 21, 21, really. I think you were considered, you know, in the 1960s, it, you know, there was a feeling that you were left on the shelf if you hadn't found your man by the time you were 21. And I mean, that's a really powerful trend. And I'm glad you've picked up on that because I think it's something people have forgotten a bit, just how useful marriages became after the Second World War. I mean, if I can manage just two figures, I'm not going to hopefully bore the audience with figures, but these are so powerful. Um, in 1921, for instance, only 14% of brides were under 21. But in 1965, 40%, 40% of brides that year were under 21. And in 1964, there was something like 18,000 brides aged between 16 and 18. So what people have forgotten, I think, is just how the age of marriage dropped so dramatically um, in the 50s and 60s. And people thought that was going to go on. I mean, not, obviously, I just stopped somewhere. You know, but people were saying, oh, you know, these girls are leaving school and swapping their prefix badge for an engagement ring. And lots of girls would get engaged while still at school. And then they would marry as soon as they could. And there was a lot of pressure on that. I mean, what you get in the 60s is you get a burgeoning of new kinds of romance magazines for girls. I mean, the ones in the 50s and 60s had titles like Mirabelle and Valentine, oh, and Boyfriend, um, and so on. And, you know, they, they very much pushed this romance idea. They were full of advice about dating, you know, and how to get your man and, you know, they were read by girls of sort of 14, 15. So girls of 14, 15 would start fantasizing about getting their man, finding their man before they got left on the shelf. Huge pressure on women to marry really early. And those young marriages, you know, they often failed. I mean, they didn't all fail. 
But, you know, when you think about the chances of a, a long a marriage lasting long term, if you marry at 21 and, you know, you live till you're 80, I mean, it's not it's not very likely. And they did, in fact, break up. So, But what people didn't expect was that that trend would suddenly go into reverse, which is what it did after 1970. I mean, it goes, you know, the, the age of marriage drops, 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 drops. People think, oh, right. This is going to be forever sort of thing. And then suddenly it goes into reverse. Um, and after 1970, people started delaying marriage or in Britain, they started not marrying at all and cohabiting instead. Now, as you showed, things have got better, but they haven't got, you know, all the problems haven't been been solved. And even mm. even in terms of the newer, better princesses or Disney characters, <laughs> the old princesses, the old models still are on sale in shops and are still very popular. And, you know, I wrote an angry letter to one of our Irish uh, clothes stores last week because, you know, they have their, you know, many people have pointed this problem out that they have a boy's section and a girl's section. So, you know, there are no superhero outfits for girls. Uh, girls can get unicorns and princesses and so on. And <laughs> boys, boys can get Spider-Man and boys can get messages saying, you know, you can be whatever you want and live your dreams whereas you know the girls are kiss me I'm cute and you know much 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 and, and, it, and it's a problem that so many people have raised but it never seems to get fixed so I kind of wonder you know you still have places pushing that 1950s you know ideal that 1950s vision yeah you do um, you know it, it, I know I think there are lots of things to say about that I mean one is that uh, you know it doesn't totally, even when girls play with Barbie dolls, you have to watch how they play with them. I mean, a lot of people comment, you know, that their daughters kind of take their heads off and things like that, or, or give them much more kind of positive personas. Um, I don't know what you do with this. I mean, you know, parents of young girls, I mean, I tried when my, my daughters were young. I just discouraged them, but they still wanted them. And I worked on the I worked on the premise that, you know, if you ban something, it becomes more desirable. So hopefully they'd get bored fairly fast, which they did. Um, so, but I know exactly what you mean. I mean, the book does look at princess culture because, you know, it keeps being a form of concern. And I think, you know, there's one American photographer who photographs little girls in Disney princess outfits. But if you look at their body posture and their kind of demeanor, they're often quite powerful. You know, they're not as wet as the ones, as the, the Disney heroines of the 50s. So, you know, I think it is still a problem, but I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't get too riled about it. I think there are lots of other things to get riled about at the moment. You know, and, you know, if, if girls can actually practice a, a whole range of roles, you know, and, and they cannot be sort of shooed out of maths classes and science classes and they can be encouraged to be more um, adventurous with, with digital technology, then I think that's the best you can do, really. OK, well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Carl. I've got some wonderful uh, parenting advice as well. So uh, a great discussion <laughs> and some great insights. So I'm very, very grateful. Thank you so much. The book is called Love Lives from Cinderella to Frozen, really comes highly recommended, published in hardback by Oxford University Press. It costs about €23. The author is Carl Diehaus, and we'll be back with more Talking History right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Irish silver 
for long renowned among collectors and connoisseurs, is increasingly being considered as an important aspect of the material world of the past. And a new collection of essays tells the story with great style. The book is called Studies in Irish Georgian Silver. It's published in hardback by Four Courts Press and costs €50. The editor is Alison Fitzgerald. And Alison, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me, Patrick. It's a great collection of scholars that you've brought together in the book. And it's a very interesting story because through looking at at silver, you're able to get a great insight into uh, what things were like at at different times and and, and how it contributed to the Ireland of the past. Yes, I mean, I think that's really the aim of the book, to use a whole range of primary sources from letters and diaries and business accounts and so on to try and reconstruct what these objects meant to the people who made them and used them and valued them and sometimes even discarded them. Now, in an era of online shopping, uh, people (laughs) will uh, get a sense of how things maybe weren't so different in the past because uh, you have examples of people buying goods uh, from home uh, uh, back in the days long before the internet. In the Georgian era, one of the distinctive um, aspects of the market is the use by English retailers of printed patterns and trade catalogues. And we're very familiar with this idea today with IKEA and Argos catalogues, for example. But the Birmingham metal baron Matthew Bolton was supplying Dublin silversmiths with his printed patterns. And these were being used to drum up trade for imported wares at the time. And also... For those who were outside the capital, outside Dublin, a lot of shopping would have been done by correspondence. So, for example, um, in 1798, in the aftermath of the rebellion, uh, when the Countess of Ormond's house um, it was burned, she ordered silver from Dublin. And Jessica Cunningham tells a wonderful story about how the silversmith who was providing it accounted for the delay in supplying her candlesticks by saying that thieves were in the area and that he was anxious about sending them. And he advised her to send a steady servant to meet the Atai packet boat. So the candlesticks were being sent by inland waterways and a steady servant was meeting the boat and then galloping along the country roads of um, Ireland bringing the British cargo safely to Castlecomer. It's also interesting when you look at things like jewellery because that's probably something that hasn't got much attention in in the scholarship so far and yet you learn an awful lot by looking at uh, jewellery in Georgian Ireland. You're absolutely right, Patrick. I mean, I think this has been one of the most overlooked aspects of the trade and Breda Scott and Vera Parr have contributed wonderful chapters on the jewellery trade in Georgian Ireland and I think it it shows us many things. I mean, it shows us, first of all, about the uh, extent to which small objects could really help to make the grand figure. So, for example, in 1754, Edward Wingfield, his second Viscount Paris Court, ordered a pair of buckles from London at the cost of £646, an extraordinary sum at any time, but certainly then. And there were also a number of uh, female retailers active in the trade during this period, people like um, Anne Cormac, who's working from Parliament Street, or Eleanor Champion from Grafton Street and and College Green. And even in terms of the materials, I think, um, the prevalence, for example, in the early 19th century of designs with a distinctively Irish dimension to them. So, for example, objects being marketed as 
uh, jewellery made with Irish diamonds, which would have been, in fact, a form of iron pyrite. And um, there is a sense of patriotism coming through in the late 18th century and early 19th century, which is certainly reflected in the advertising. And I think it's also interesting that this wasn't, silver wasn't just something for the elite, the very rich, that there were an awful lot of middle class consumers as well. I think that's a really important point that you raise, Patrick, because I think there is a tendency naturally to think of silver as an elite commodity, which indeed it is. But silver was valued for many reasons in the 18th century. And one of them, for example, being that it is a hygienic metal. So that idea of being born with a silver spoon in your mouth is not just about status, but also many who could afford to to use silver um, to feed their children did so. And I think that one of the things that comes through from Guild Records and from newspaper advertisements is that certainly for the upper middle class, silver was a viable commodity and a desirable commodity. And just the fact that almost 28,000 teaspoons were sent into Dublin for hallmarking in one year alone, 1788, tells us that there was a market for these things beyond the aristocracy. You also uh, have a very interesting insight into the role of women uh, in in the silver trade because uh, quite quite significant contributions from women. Yes, I think women are active in the trade in in many ways. They're active as makers uh, to a certain extent, to a small extent. They're active as sellers and these would be uh, women who are widows or daughters of silversmiths. Um, They're also obviously very active as consumers as well. And some of these people really are redoubtable. I mean, Anne Cormac is an example. I mentioned her before of somebody who's trading from Parliament Street, supplying the latest uh, English wares, very um, enterprising in her advertising strategies and so on. Jane Keane is an example of a female silversmith who continues the business business after her husband dies. And in her trade advertising, she mentions the number of children that she has and that she's really relying on public support for her livelihood. Very good. Well, it's a fascinating collection of essays, Studies in Irish Georgian Silver, published in hardback by Four Courts Press. The editor, Alison Fitzgerald, did a brilliant job bringing all of the wonderful scholarship together. And Alison, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Patrick. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book tells the story of Bridget Noble, one of only two women known for certain to have been disappeared by the IRA during the Irish Troubles of the early 1920s. The book is called The Execution of Bridget Noble, The Missing Woman of the Bear Peninsula Troubles. It's published as an e-book from, and available from Amazon. It costs €7. Euro. The author is Sean Boyne. And Sean, thanks a million for joining us. It's a fascinating story. Tell, tell us about Bridget Noble. Who, who was she? Um, well, she was a woman who lived on the Bear Peninsula. She would have been a native Irish speaker. And um, she was born in the 1870s. She was married to a Scotsman. He was a, a cooper. He came from Fraserburgh in uh, Aberdeenshire. Um, I first found out about her about 2013 when I was doing research in the Irish Military Archives for my biography of Emmett Dalton. And I happened to come across letters to do with her disappearance. Um, I was most most uh, surprised. I'd never heard about this before. And um, I eventually decided that I would inquire further 
into the case. And um, as you mentioned, uh, she is only one of two women known for certain to have been disappeared uh, by the IRA during the War of Independence. Um, the other woman, um, her her case was very well known. Um, she was a Protestant uh, lady called Mary Lindsay, who was disappeared um, also in early 1921, um, shot as a spy and um, her remains uh, uh, buried secretly. Um, Mrs. Noble, um, her original name was Mary Neal. She married uh, Alexander Noble in the Catholic Church at Iris in 1907. He was a, from a Presbyterian background. And um, uh, she had been seen making visits to the uh, RIC station in Castletown Bear. She was friendly with a local, uh, it would appear, with a local RIC sergeant. Her husband was away working in England at this stage. She was alone on this um, uh, tiny uh, touch cottage at Rinavad with her elderly father. It was a tiny farm and um, the local IRA decided to punish her and about seven or eight men uh, carried out a punishment attack on her in, in uh, which her hair was forcibly shorn off. And um, she very unwisely, I think, but very bravely, it could be said, uh, decided to complain about her alleged uh, assailants to the RIC. One was arrested. And I believe that this was the main reason why she was put to death. And there was some suggestion that she was a, a naive woman. And even the, the original offence that she seems to have caused seems to have, you know, there wasn't anything malicious in it. The friendship with uh, uh, a local police sergeant, perhaps uh, visiting the police station, that this seems to have 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 have, have caused such a, a, a response. And as you sh- as you say, showed courage in in then reporting it and uh the decision taken to to make her disappear and to kill her you know it it is shocking and it does have echoes of you know later atrocities during the the the, the more recent troubles including what happened to Jean McConville yes there, i think there are certain parallels with uh Jean McConville both women um, essentially alone. Um, Jean McConville, as we know, was a widow. She had married across the um, uh, the ethnic and religious divide, as indeed did uh, Bridget Noble. Uh, both women alone, uh, both women vulnerable, both women taken away, held prisoner for a period of time, and then put to death, and their remains secretly hidden, secretly disposed of. Uh, so there are certain parallels. And um, I was also struck by reports that um, as she was being taken away to her death, she'd been held for a period of time uh, in a house in in a place called Kilkenny. Catherine, a beautiful location, uh, a valley, uh, sort of a secret valley with just one house in it. I was shown it by um, some local people. And as she'd been taken away in, in a donkey and cart down the Boreen to the sea, where she'd be transported by boat to another location, and people heard her calling out for someone to save her. And Jean McConville likewise called out for someone to save for um, for someone to save her as she, as she was being taken away f- uh, from her children um, in the more recent troubles. 
And part of the story is the the courageous quest of her husband, Alexander Noble, to find out what happened to her, including uh, writing to Eamon de Valera. Uh, well, as I say, he was working in England. Um, uh, uh, he was in uh, working as a cooper in Grimsby. And eventually he found out that his wife had gone missing. Um, she had uh, set off to... Um, to, 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 to go to Castletown Bear and she was um, uh, kidnapped on the road to Castletown Bear and he eventually found out that she was missing and, and obviously uh, uh, being an, essentially an outsider in that community um, he would have had problems uh, as to who to turn to to find out and I believe that he saw a report in the newspapers just after the truce that Eamon de Valera had gone to London to meet uh, David Lloyd George, the Prime Minister, with an entourage, and that he was staying in, in a very famous hotel uh, in London, and um, so uh, the, the Grosvenor Hotel. So Alexander now had an address uh, to to uh, which he could send a letter, and he wrote to, to De Valera, care of the Grosvenor Hotel, um, and this was around July uh, of 1921, and De Valera replied to him and said that he would have inquiries made. Um, so there was a long drawn out process. Then he didn't. Alexander didn't get uh, word immediately. So uh, eventually he enlisted the aid of um, a prominent solicitor, Jasper uh, Wolf, and he made inquiries. And eventually, about a year after the disappearance of his wife, he got word from the new provisional government that she had been put to death uh, as a spy. You've also been able to uncover you know, some of the details of what happened to the people who committed the, the, the crime, the atrocity. What do we know of them? Well, some of them um, who escorted her, they were very young. We don't know exactly who did what, so I'm reluctant to uh, to make allegations. But uh, they, they went to, um, some of them w- went to America. Um, one man who was alleged to have been her executioner, again, we don't know if that's uh, for certain. Um, he uh, was on the Republican side in the Civil War, as indeed were many of the uh, Ira uh, Battalion IRA people at the time. And he was badly beaten by Free State soldiers towards the end of the Civil War, not in connection with Mrs. Noble, but they were trying to find out where, I believe, where arms dumps were located. And he died in hospital uh, in 1924. Um, the, the commandant um, of the battalion, um, uh, he um, went to America, but uh, eventually came back. And it was he who wrote the internal IRA report uh, on her death. Um, but he never made any uh, public comment about it afterwards. And I got the impression there was a kind of um, uh, omerta uh, which uh, prevailed. Uh, people involved in this were seemed reluctant to talk about it. Uh, maybe, possibly, they were, they had, some of them had remorse or were ashamed of what had been done. It was not exactly um, sort of a, a, a noble act of 
uh, warfare against the black and tans or anything. She was quite a vulnerable woman. Um, there was another allegation made against her that she had um, told the the police about the name, um, about the identity of two men who uh, two IRA men who allegedly uh, shot dead a local farmer um, uh, in an agrarian dispute. Um, but there is an anomaly there because. One of the uh, men that she is uh, accused of informing on, he was actually a deportee in England when that killing took place. So he could never have been a suspect. And and the report, I thought, was quite misleading. And uh, maybe the commandant didn't mean to mislead. But certainly when you read the report, you got the impression that these two men had to be for uh, had been forced to go on the run. And in fact, we now know that one of them could never have been a suspect as he was. The British had deported him to England uh, to Wormwood Scrubs prison. And he was actually in hospital in, in London recovering from a hunger strike when the man was shot. Okay. Well, Sean, thanks so much for coming on the show tonight to talk to us about the execution of Bridget Noel. The book is available as an ebook from Amazon. The author is Sean Boyne. And Sean, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Patrick. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A spellbinding new biography is the definitive biography of Joseph Stalin from his birth to the October Revolution of 1917, a panoramic and often chilling account of how an impoverished idealistic youth from the provinces of Tsarist Russia was transformed into a cunning and fearsome outlaw who would one day become one of the 20th century's most ruthless dictators. The book is called Stalin, Passage to Revolution. It's published in hardback by Princeton University Press and costs £35 sterling, so about €40. The author is Ronald Grigor Suni. And Ronald, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you. This is such a pleasure for me. It's a fascinating story, Ronald. And it's if this was a television multi-series program, you wouldn't really believe the transformation or it would be quite a dramatic transformation the way this religious, romantic poet, idealist in later seasons became the terrifying dictator Stalin. What a wonderful idea, Patrick. Yes, I hope you'll make it into a series, something like Norman... Normal people. I like that idea very much. And you're right. The story is quite incredible. When you think about what we know about Stalin, at the end of his life, he's probably one one of two most powerful people in the world. He's the absolute monarch. He's the, the autocrat of the largest country in the world, the Soviet Union. But he starts out in Gori, in a provincial town in Georgia, in southern Tsarist Russia. The son of a very religious mother who he adores and an alcoholic abusive father. And somehow out of that culture, out of that province, out of those streets, those wild streets of Gordy, he emerges through school, through seminary to become a revolutionary and eventually the Stalin we know of the 1930s and 40s. So what do you think went wrong? What what happened and what changed? You know, you take us through his schooling, you take us through uh, these underground movements he became involved in. Was it something that was inside him that was driving him to be, you know, number one? And was it the politics of the era? Was there a particular event? What What happened? It's interesting that you say what went wrong because in some ways the story is indeed of something that went wrong. 
that and 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 for me, it's kind of regretful that ultimately a movement that had been uh, underground and punished and persecuted uh, during Czarist times, the Social Democrats, the Marxist revolutionaries, turns into something not democratic, not in my view socialistic, but in fact a kind of dictatorship, a kind of tyranny. And why does that happen? Is it in fact Stalin himself? He certainly oversees this and he's responsible in a large sense. But it may be more that it was Russia who made Stalin than Stalin making Russia. So this biography is not one in which the child is father to the man. Rather, the child was, as you mentioned, idealistic, romantic, a poet. He was known as Bulbuli. Imagine, Stalin had a beautiful singing voice and was very proud of it. And then that boy, through a series of uh, transfers, becomes much crueler. There's a kind of what I call erosion of empathy, much more pragmatic, Machiavellian, much more instrumental in the way he uses other people. And part of that comes out of the revolutionary experience, 1905, on the periphery of an empire, which was a very cruel place to be. Tsarism was particularly harsh in the Caucasus, in the Baltic areas, in Poland, at the edges of the empire. And then as well, the underground, being an outlaw for decades, exile in Siberia. At the end of the, of the, of the period I deal with, 1913 to 1917, he's in the extremes of the far north, suffering there as well. At times reading it, I was reminded of Michael Corleone in The Godfather, the way Michael Corleone discovers that he has a, has a that he's good at it when he gets involved in the family business. And I wonder, did something similar happen with Stalin that when he became involved in this terrorist group that he discovered that he actually was, he had a talent for this. He was very good and he had these leadership skills that stood out. I think you have a, a point there. That is, he goes through different cultures. He moves from Georgia to Baku, to an international city, and then on to Russia. He moves through his provincial culture and his romantic nationalism of Georgia into an internationalist movement, uh, and again, sheds much of his earlier Georgian identity. All of those things seem to be true. There must be some continuity, right? It's the same person. He's developing over time. Uh, but it's those different contexts. Because I think about that in my own life or any of our, our lives that you might observe, how we change over time, how we're, in, we're the same, but we're also different. We become different things as we respond to opportunities, to afflictions, to difficulties, to acquaintances. Uh, we, we, we educate and learn, and we forget some things as well. So I think there is an evolution there. And I think it's a rather cruel one in his case. As I said, the erosion of empathy and the becoming much more Machiavellian, pragmatic instrumentalist over time until he becomes able to become the kind of Stalin that you find after the revolution, during the Civil War, and then in the 1930s when he has all power and is unconstrained by any normal moralities or institutions uh, or other opponents. He's destroyed them all. 
And, you know, sometimes you might think, is there anything new that can be said about someone like Stalin uh, when there's been so much scholarship uh, devoted to him? But what your book shows and the new archival material you've unearthed that uh, by taking a a different perspective, a look at at a a different approach to the to the to the subject, you can actually uh, get a very different uh, perspective and insight. I'm so glad you say that because that's what I aimed at. I thought, you know, should I really write a biography of the young Stalin? This is a neglected period. It's true. Most people are more interested in the revolution and in the 1930s, the great purges, the gulag, etc. But I thought, I want to see how the man was made. And I wanted to take seriously the movement that he joined. That is social democracy or what we call Marxist revolutionary movement in Russia and see that they originally had idealistic and even romantic or utopian aspirations. They were for democracy. They wanted emancipation of the people. And the big question you asked at the beginning, Patrick, why did it turn out this way? Why, in the end, did this movement, with all of its its idealism, become something so cruel, so destructive to so many millions of people? So in some ways, I want to tell that prelude to the revolution in all of its complexities, hopefully in good, clear, understandable prose, so that anyone out there who's interested in history and in the fate of revolutionary movements and of political aspirations will be interested enough to read it. Okay, well, uh, Ronald, congratulations on the book. An absolutely brilliant new study of the early life of Stalin. It's called Stalin, Passage to Revolution. It's published in hardback by Princeton University Press and costs about €40. Euro. The author is Ronald Grigor Suni. And Ronald, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. It was wonderful. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Now, I'm delighted to be joined by Brian McMahon, who's the PRO of the Silorgan Local History Society, and Margaret Smith, who's a member, to talk about Obelisk, the journal of the Kilmacud Silorgan Local History Society, the volume for 2021. And uh, to talk to us all about the delighted to welcome Brian and Margaret. Uh, both of you, you're very welcome to Talking History. Thank you, Patrick. Brian, can we begin with the society and, and your activities? Uh, uh, what kind of work do you do? Well, we were set up 20 years ago, Patrick, uh, by Peter Sobolewski, who brought together a group of like-minded people to explore the history of Stillorgan and to do what a lot of local histories decided to have a monthly talk and an annual outing. It started off with a very simple program, but it uh, developed into something um, more significant, I suppose. We're very pleased to say that our monthly talks have continued since last September in spite of everything. We're sending them out to members and they can watch them online. And in a way, I wonder, uh, Brian, has there been an increased interest because of the very fact that people are trapped at home and uh, uh, this is a way of connecting with, with people in the, in the local area and connecting with the past as well? There has indeed, and a much wider scope, a wider, wider range, because we're reaching a lot more people who are outside of the immediate area who wouldn't have been able to come to our monthly talk. And Margaret, that brings us to uh, Obelisk, this wonderful journal and some great articles I was looking through in, in, in this new one. Uh, how long has Obelisk been in, in, in existence? Well, this is our 15th edition this year and it started off as a very simple journal, but it has evolved into the product that you see in front of you today, which we're very pleased with and very proud of. And talk to me about uh, how you source the articles. Is it people who have contributed to the society? You you ask them to write up their paper afterwards? 
Uh, yes, every year we look for submissions at our talks and also on our website. And every year we worry we may not get enough <laughs> articles, but we have never had that problem at all. Quite the opposite, in fact. So we get from uh, our members, but also wider field people who hear about us and have some connection to the area and might like to write about something that they know about growing up in the area or about some individual who lived in the area. And uh, we extend wider feed to the more academic as well as the simple memories. And, and Margaret, uh, some excellent pieces. For example, I love Pat Norris's uh, piece on, uh, on on looking at all the way from Stillorgan to Apollo 11. Yes, a different sort of an article. Pat Norris grew up in Stillorgan, went to school in Oaklands and went to UCD. And he achieved very highly going on to work for NASA as a mathematician. He developed algorithms for the computers to use to navigate the moon landings. And um, he writes about 1969 being there for Apollo 11 and the first landing on the moon and how the algorithms didn't quite work. And it was a very scary moment before they landed. But uh, he said, fortunately, by Apollo 12, everything was working perfectly. And then he went on to work for the European Space Agency. So he's had quite a stellar career. Um, very just shows how some people from the area go on to spend most interesting lives. And Brian, it shows how it's possible to start with local history, but connect to to global history and uh, how very often the most exciting stories can have uh, this very interesting local beginning. Indeed, that is true. Yes, it's, um, in the current issue, we have several references to Bloody Sunday, the anniversary of Bloody Sunday, including a man called Liam Devlin. John Healy writes about Liam Devlin, who was his grandfather, a successful businessman in the early years of the state. B.B. Um, Toffee was his company, based in Gloucester Street and employing 200 people. But Liam Devlin had a lot more uh, to him than just a successful businessman, because in 1919 he returned from Scotland, and he was a supporter of uh, Michael Collins. And in fact, it was in Devlin's bar, owned by Liam, in Parnell Street, where um, the centre of Collins's intelligence operations was located. It was there that Collins was on Bloody Sunday, uh, um, hearing reports of events of the day. And it was there, indeed, in 1924 that the army mutiny was planned by Liam Tobin and Charlie Dalton. Very good. And Margaret, in terms of the way uh, people approach the the kinds of studies, do you think that, what do you think works best? Is it something that, that connects to these bigger uh, historical questions like Bloody Sunday? Or uh, do, do the members uh, enjoy more the ones that are purely focused on some of the rich history and heritage of the locality? Well, from my point of view, I think the important thing is variety. But a lot of the older members would appreciate somebody writing about growing up in the area. And whereas another person might find that a little tedious, if you have lived in an area all your life, um, you do like to read about all the businesses and all the activities and the schools and the churches that, uh, that existed in the past. Very good. And Margaret, if, if any of our listeners want to get their hands on the latest uh, edition or even some of the older editions, uh, which I think are available at a reduced price on the yes, website, what, what, what's the best way of doing it? Is it the website? Well, at the moment, the website, www.kilmacudstillorganhistory.ie. 
and you can buy them online. They're also available in Still Organ Credit Union and we have many old issues available too. And we have a selection of articles that um, you can see what the articles are in the old edition. So if anything interests you in particular, you may wish to buy that. Um, also, I, I must say it's only seven euro but uh, the price does not reflect the quality, I would say. We are a totally voluntary concern. We only pay for printing. Everything else is done on a voluntary basis. So uh, we just wish to cover our costs and spread history. Okay, well, I think that's a brilliant message and it's one that we would wholeheartedly endorse on Talking History. It's Obelisk, the Journal of the Kilmacud Stilorgan Local History Society 2021. As Margaret says, they're available for €7. And my thanks to Brian McMahon and Margaret Smith for joining me to talk about it. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Thank you, Patrick. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Susan Cal, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we'll be looking at the life and work of the French post-impressionist artist Cézanne, and we'll be finding out why Picasso called him the father of us all. So join us next week on News Talk, weaving Talking History. Good night. Talking History on News Talk.